All right, friends, I see that it is 10 o'clock, so let's get started, especially because we have to quit a little bit early uh, so we can get up to worship. Um, so welcome, everybody. Good to be with you again and be able to dig into the book of Mark. Um, have you noticed, since you guys are all Mark scholars, since you've been working through this every Tuesday, have you noticed how the intensity is kind of turning up a notch each time we've been together? You know, this uh, we're in this time of Mark now. It's the third of Jesus' three years of his public ministry. And, um, you know, the, the pressure is getting turned up. The teachings of Jesus are getting more and more intense and more and more pointed. Have you noticed? Right? You see, and today we're going to get into some real important stuff, the parable of the tenants. Jesus is now past the time of mincing words or playing nice. Now he's just really laying out the truth, uh, the truth that they need to hear, even if it's not the truth they want to hear, if you know what I mean. So today we get the parable of the tenants, uh, just as he really is having this interaction with the religious authorities who, at this point in time, they just want to get rid of him. Uh, they're done. They've rejected him. And so he's going to talk to them today in the parable of the tenants about the consequences for rejecting uh, the owner of the vineyard and the consequences for rejecting the cornerstone. So it's going to be hot as we get into it today. Uh, but again, the thing about the Bible is you know this, right? The Bible's not a historical document about things that happened 2,000 years ago or longer. The document is a historical document about things that happened 2,000 years ago, but what? It's also a living word that is still every bit relevant for you and me in the world in which we live today. So as we look at the religious leaders who are rejecting Jesus and the cornerstone that he is, we also need to look at ourselves, don't we? And ask, are we rejecting Jesus and the cornerstone? Uh, so, again, this is the beauty of the Word of God, isn't it? It continues to speak to all generations of all times because it is a living Word. So, can't wait to dig into the parable of the tenants with you today. Just a couple announcement kind of things before we pray and get into it. Next Tuesday is voting day. So, what does that mean for our class? Upstairs in the sanctuary. Exactly. So, um, remember, next weekend we'll be upstairs in the sanctuary so we can have this all open for voting. Uh, and then um, Marge's birthday today. So we want to celebrate that. And she's got a good lunch, you said. Not just snacks, but there's a lunch upstairs for us after church. So it's like, you know, if you stay for church, you get reward. <laughs> no, that's not the way it works. Uh, but if you stay for church, you can have lunch and celebrate Marge's birthday with us. So there's that, too. Um, and then don't forget, this weekend already is Palm Sunday. Can you believe it? Where did Lent go? I'm always happy to see Lent in the rearview mirror. I don't know about you, but uh, I love when Easter comes. It's just a whole new time. All right, so that being said, let's have a word of prayer and we'll dig in. Gracious Lord, Heavenly Father, God, praise and thank you for this day that you've given us. Praise and thank you that we didn't get snow today and the sidewalks and driveways and parking lots were actually clear. We rejoice in that. It has been a whale of a winter, Lord. So thank you for this day and for being able to be together, uh, see the sunshine this morning. Thank you for being able to be in your word, to be able then to worship afterwards, and then to celebrate birthdays and friendships and a good lunch. Um, Lord, we are blessed and so, so grateful uh, to be together. Also grateful for those who are um, participating with us online. Uh, we're grateful for that technology and that folks can, can join us from their couches or dining room tables or wherever. Uh, and all of us can be gathered around your word as you lead and guide and feed us through your Holy Spirit. So thanks, God. Thanks for this um, very uh, important part of scripture today, the parable of the tenants and the reminder that Jesus is the cornerstone and how we build our foundation, we build our lives on him and the direction he has set for us. So let this word of God be true and meaningful and helpful for us in our lives. So all that being said, Lord, bless us as we learn, grow, and enjoy your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all, Mark chapter 12, if you want to turn there. The parable of the tenants. I will read these verses 1 through 12 for you, and then we will get our scalpels out, and we will dissect the Word of God. I love dissecting the Word of God. 
because what happens is he dissects my heart in the process, doesn't he? All right, chapter 12. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. He said, A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. And this is the gospel of the Lord. Ooh, that's a good one, right? Oh, man. So, do you hear what I'm saying about the tension, the pressure? Jesus isn't mincing words anymore. He's not playing nice. He's laying out the truth whether they like it or not, isn't he? And the response, I think, is predictable, isn't it? So we'll talk about that. So take a look at your sheets just to get our bearings. Right here in Mark chapter 12, it is now Tuesday of Holy Week, what we call Holy Week. Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. You've already studied this. He cleansed the temple on Monday. And now on Tuesday, he has an amazing and certainly frustrating day of intense teaching. Right? So let's get our bearings. Right? Open your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 11. I don't know if your Bible writer is in your margins, but if you want, I think it's helpful. Right? Right in front of, of uh, Mark 11 verse 1, in your margin, write Sunday. Because this is Sunday when Jesus enters Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. Some of you are smiling. You've done this already, right? We've done this before, haven't we? <laughs> so write Sunday in your margin on chapter 11, uh, verse 1. So he comes in uh, to Jerusalem, and then look at 11, verse 12. Do you see how it says there, the next day? So right there, by verse 12, you can write Monday. So on Monday, what does he do? He clears the temple. And that was intense, right? Talk about turning up the heat. Talk about a shocker. Can you imagine all the religious people like, here's Jesus, hallelujah, hosanna, hosanna. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to set Jerusalem up on the, you know, in their rightful place again. He, our deliverer is finally here. And what's the first thing he does? He goes to the temple and overturns and upsets things there. Don't you think they wanted to say, Jesus, you're in the wrong place. You're in the wrong temple. You need to go over there to Pilate's temple. <laughs> That's where you're supposed to be doing all this stuff. So already, it's, it's, Jesus is done. He's, he's doing, he's focused on where he's going right now, whether they like it or not. So Monday, he clears the temple. Then look at verse 20 of chapter 11. Do you see verse 20? In the morning, so right there you can write the word Tuesday. So now we're on Tuesday. Right, verse 20 begins Tuesday of Holy Week. Now this Tuesday in Mark is a big teaching day. I mean, look at the things that's going to happen on Tuesday. The withered fig tree, the authority of Jesus is questioned. Chapter 12, we get to the parable of tenants, what we're going to talk about today. 
Then in chapter 12, he talks about paying taxes to Caesar. Then he talks about marriage at the resurrection. And then he talks about the greatest commandment here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then in verse 35 of 12, he talks about whose son is the Christ. Then he talks about the widow's offering. Chapter 13, he's going to talk to them about what happens when the Son of Man returns again, the signs of the end age. Chapter 13, verse 32, he's going to talk about the day and the hour when that comes. You never know, so be ready. And then chapter 14, we finally get to Wednesday. So 14, verse 1, you can write in the margin, Wednesday. Now at the Passover feast on unleavened bread, we're only two days away. That's why we know it's Wednesday. Two days away from the, from the Passover. Right? So that's Wednesday on 14, verse 1. And then what happens on verse 12 of chapter 14? On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we know that's Thursday. That's the day we call Monday Thursday. Right? The day that Jesus gives the Lord's Supper. But why do we call it Monday Thursday? You know, Monday is a Latin word, mandatum, which means commandment. So we call it Monday Thursday because that's the night Jesus said, a new commandment I give you. Right? So that's why Monday that we get that word from mandatum, from commandment. So that's Thursday. Um, and then uh, after the Lord's Supper, he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane in verse 32. Then when you get to, uh, he's arrested in verse 43. And then in verse 53, they took Jesus to the high priest. And there you can write Friday. Now we're on Good Friday. His trials begin uh, the crucifixion, of course, all on Good Friday. And that's as far... Oh, Saturday begins. Uh, Sunday is the resurrection on chapter 16, verse 1. And Saturday is just in the middle there somewhere. We call that Silent Saturday sometimes. Holy Saturday. Between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Three days of the Triduum. All right, so see, isn't it beautiful how Mark lays out, did you know that how much of the gospel of Mark is on this last week of Jesus' life? And so these are the, this is where we find ourselves today. It's Tuesday of Holy Week. Jesus is marching straight to the cross. He's marching towards his purpose. He knows what's coming. Remember earlier in Mark, Jesus would say, you know, don't tell anybody. Right? Those days are done. Now it's like, <laughs> tell everybody, because the time has come. The time is right for me to take my place on the, the throne. Not the throne you think, but the throne I know, the cross. Right? So it's getting hot. So, of course, it's getting hot because the um, Pharisees are getting hot, aren't they? The scribes, the religious leaders, um, have made up their minds to get rid of him. All right, so, thought or question before I move into the second paragraph? Cool? All right, next. Jesus was interacting with these Jewish religious authorities. He had already forcefully cleansed the temple, which really was the last straw for the religious leaders, right? It's like you can mess with a lot of stuff, and we'll let it slide. But don't mess with the temple. You know what I'm saying? That's like you can mess with a lot of my stuff, but if you touch my Packer stock certificate, then we're going to have words. You see what I'm saying? Right? So you can mess with a lot of stuff, but as soon as you mess with the temple, that's the last straw for them. When Jesus said, you're turning my house, like they're saying, whose house? Who you say, who do you think you are? Right? As soon as you start messing with the temple, then, all right. So they now they're challenging him to declare, by what authority are you doing these things? Right? They're like, who are you to come in here and do these things? Who are you to come in and challenge us? They're questioning his authority, his credentials as an unauthorized teacher of God's word. <laughs> See, and now Jesus is, is at that point where he's not going to let him get away with that anymore. So he tells the parable of the tenants. And when we look at this in just a second, th this is one of the most pointed times that Jesus ever really laid it on the Pharisees. I mean, there's a few times where he just really gets right in their face, and you know who he is exactly talking about. This is one of those times. Where? Oops. Tenants. 
Yep, yep, yep. Sorry about that. The parable of the tenants. My fingers don't work. So he gives this judgment to them. And, he, and, and, and see, here's what I like. He moves beyond the, the sort of shallow, spiritual shallowness, which he's attacked many times before. And now he gets to the outright rejection of him as the promised one and the consequences of that, the resultant loss of the kingdom. All right? So that's sort of the background of where this is coming out of. So as usual, the story was easy to understand because Jesus does stuff like that. When he tells a parable, he talks it in terms of things that people know and see around them all the time. So there's two things here about this, right? First, the practice of renting out vineyards to tenant farmers was well known. So when Jesus tells the story about a landowner who rented out his land to the tenants to care for it, while he was gone, everybody knew how that worked. That was common practice. So they all would have said, yep, we get it. We know what this is all about. We know how this works, right? In such an arrangement, the tenants gained a place to live and work and share in the harvest and agreed upon percentage. And the landowner benefited by having his vineyard properly cared for and productive for him. So that's one part. The second is the imagery Jesus used was also super familiar to them. It was drawn from Isaiah's picture of Israel as the Lord's vineyard. So don't miss this. When he tells this parable, there's a twofold sort of piece to it. First of all, they all understood the very thing they could see in front of them. The land, tenants, that was a picture that was right around them all the time. But they also knew there was a reference there. That whenever religious people talked about the vineyard, like a little light bulb would click in their mind. They would go, oh, vineyard, we know what they're talking about. When they say vineyard, they're not talking about a chunk of land. They're talking about the nation of Israel, God's Old Testament people. And why did they know that? You just got to look back at Isaiah chapter 51. Turn your Bibles there, please. This is one of many examples. Did I say 51? I'm sorry. It's Isaiah 5, 1. Is that another typo? Did I put... I want you to turn to Isaiah 5. Sorry. Mouth engage. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, for one of the classic examples of vineyard talk. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 says, I will sing a song for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Can I just stop? Did that sound at all familiar to you like something you just heard a little earlier? When Jesus is telling this parable, he is, he is absolutely painting a picture that would remind everyone about the picture that Isaiah drew in chapter 5 here. Right? That can't be coincidence. You see what I'm saying? He was doing this on purpose. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its head and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. And now here, verse 7. This is the important verse. Well, that's all important. <laughs> the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is what? The house of Israel and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. All right, so this is not the only place in the Old Testament where this vineyard imagery is used as a picture of God's people in the Old Testament. All right, so Jesus is going to paint this picture in his parable about the vineyard, and everybody who was there, I promise you, knew exactly who was talking about. So let's make sure we do. 
right? Do we? Question number one. Who are the who's the vineyard? Right, the old the Old Testament people, God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, right? The remnant that was still there in Jesus' day. Who were the tenants who were assigned the task of caring for the Lord's vineyard? Yeah, these are the religious leaders. Uh, these are those who were appointed to be the spiritual leaders of God's people. They were the ones who the landowner left in charge to tend the vineyard, to make sure that it would produce good fruit. They were given the responsibility of caring for the vineyard while the master was gone, knowing that one day he would come back looking for the fruit. Okay, you see? Don't miss who the tenants are. The tenants, then, are the very ones who Jesus is talking to, he's having this argument with. They are very ones who are questioning his authority. The tenants are the ones who are saying, who are you to tell us what's right or what's wrong? Those are the tenants. He's, this parable is just zinging right at them, right? The tenants sign in the task of caring for the Lord's people, these religious people. So don't miss this. When we're looking at this parable, Jesus' judgment, and if there's some harsh judgment in this parable, right? The judgment is not on the vineyard. Who's the judgment upon? The tenants. Yep, see, this is the point. Jesus is saying, you guys have given this task to care for the vineyard, and he, what, what have you done? You know, you've, you've led them astray. There's no fruit. You're killing the people that God sent. You know, that, so it's the tenants that are the ones who are getting the judgment, not the vineyard. This isn't about God's people. It's about God's leaders. He's giving it right back to the ones who are trying to give it to him. Follow me, everybody? All right, so number two. What was pictured by the landowner sending his servants to collect his fruit and then finally sending his own son. Again, thinking back to this picture of the Old Testament, right? And God's people, the vineyard, being mishandled by the tenants. Who were the servants that were sent to help the tenants care for the people in the vineyard? All of God's prophets, right? And one after another, God sent his prophets. One after another, God would work through his prophets to help the tenants do what they were supposed to do, which is care for the vineyard so that it would produce fruit for the Lord, right? One after another, the prophets would come in Jesus' story. The first one they beat. The second one they beat and said they did shameful things to him. The third one they killed. And God still kept sending and sending and sending until what? There was only one left. The final prophet, the ultimate prophet, his own son, right? So don't miss the players in this beautiful parable of the tenants, right? Finally, God sends his own son. And so as we look at this then, to reject the, to reject those that the uh, landowner sent and to reject the son is really to reject whom? Okay, yes, he's the son. So to reject the son and to reject those that the landowner sent is really rejecting whom? God. That's the point. God the Father. That that's that's again the, this Jewish mind. That's that's their. They didn't have this Messiah thing figured out yet, did they? So really, what he's saying is, when you reject the prophets, when you reject the Son, you know who you're really rejecting? The one you call your father. You're rejecting Father, the Father God of the Old Testament. So you see, Jesus is not, he's not mincing words anymore. He's getting right to the heart of the matter, right, about what it is that's at stake here. By not accepting the prophets, by not accepting the Son, you're not accepting God the Father, which means you are, you are removing yourself from the vineyard. You get it? All right. So, um, question three. Isn't it interesting, then, that after Jesus has this parable, at the end of verse 9, he does something to reinforce the parable. What does he do? He pivots to the Scriptures. 
he pivots to the Old Testament. He pivots to what the folks, the religious leaders who were there considered the word of God, right? So now he's going to use what they all agree is the word of God to prove his point. Do you get it? He pivots to Psalm, the Psalm here about uh, Psalm 118, but the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. So uh, question three, I just thought it would be fun to chat a little bit. Why did Jesus quote from Scripture here? Why did he need to quote from Scripture? Did they accept his words? Right? See, when he was speaking to them, his, his word was meaningless to them. Right over the, he had no authority. Remember, that's what they were questioning, his authority. You know, and so Jesus says, all right, if you don't believe me on this, how about we go to the authority? We go to your authority for truth, which is the scriptures. And then he quotes this beautiful scripture, Psalm 118, to help them see that everything he's teaching is true. It's not just his idea. It's not his word, but he goes back to the word that they all accepted as God's word to help reinforce this truth. So he applies really, he, he turns the tables on them by quoting scripture and applies their own judgment against themselves. Do you see what he does? He uses their own word to, to turn judgment. Um, he wanted their scripture to prove to them what he said was true. Still, it's a great strategy today. When you're sharing with someone about your faith, often you will hear people say, well, who said you get to determine truth? Who says you get to say what's right or wrong? Where's your authority come from? And what's our answer? Because I was in Pastor Dan's Bible study. <laughs> wrong, bad, bad, bad choice, right? Where does our authority come from? From the Word of God. I use this one a lot. I say, hey, listen, if you don't like it, don't take it up with me. I didn't make the rules. I didn't write the words down. It's God's way. It's God's word. Not my word. It's God's word. So this is kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, listen, if you don't believe me, right? don't believe because I say so, because you don't know who I am yet, but believe it because the word of God says so. So he quotes scripture. Well, what you'll often hear, if you couldn't hear, she said, when you say, don't take it up, you know, it's not my word, take it up with God. What you'll often hear is, yeah, so who gets to determine how you interpret that? Yeah, they'll say that too. Yeah, it's old and dusty. It's not relevant anymore. You'll hear that. But more than that, I hear, you know, so it's really a matter of interpretation. You know, we all have the same word, but we all interpret it differently. So how do you know what truth is? And I'm always then, my next answer to that is, well, just because we get it wrong doesn't mean it's wrong. <laughs> it still is true. Our job is to try and figure out what is truth in it, right? Don't blame the word because we all disagree about it. The word is still the word. It's still truth. You know, so it's still God's word and it's still truth. And if we disagree on it, that's our fault, not the word's fault. Yeah. Okay. So he quotes scripture and then he goes to 118 and, and now he changes an analogy a little bit, doesn't he? First, he's talking about vineyards and now he switches to buildings and cornerstones, right? Jesus quoting from Psalm 118 changes the analogy. Y'all know cornerstones were key stones in ancient buildings, establishing the line of the walls and tying them together. Right? If you're underlining in your sheet, that's one you'll want to underline. The cornerstone sets the shape and the direction of the building. Right? It's crazy how this works. The cornerstone, right? If you move the cornerstone just an inch, what happens to the rest of the foundation? The whole foundation moves. And the further you get away from the from the cornerstone, you all know about angles and stuff, right? The further you get away from the cornerstone, the greater the distance becomes. <laughs> See, Jesus is the cornerstone. And 
his who he is then sets the the shape and the direction of the building and so here he compares himself to this cornerstone uh, stones for this purpose then were carefully examined and flawed stones were rejected you couldn't use a scroungy old stone for the cornerstone it had to be the best stone it had to be this the square the the uh, angles the cut of the stone had to be perfect because or if it wasn't the whole rest of the building would be imperfect so it was a very uh, important task to choose the cornerstone all right so read the, this is beautiful the greek word for rejected apado kamasin right uh, is is the word that's used for testing coins to determine if they're genuine you know uh, in those days, coins were made out of real gold. So there were a lot of fake coins. So how would you know if the coin was real gold or a fake coin? You had to test it. And more than just biting it. <laughs> more than just a bite, although that was a basic test, right? So the process of testing whether it was genuine or not, right? That word is the same word that Jesus says the stone has been rejected. They've tested the cornerstone, in other words, he's saying, and they found it to be lacking. They found it to be counterfeit. I'm going to read on. Jesus applied the words from the psalm to the Jewish leaders. He was forcing them to see that they had examined and tested him and decided that he was a counterfeit Messiah. But the psalm, he stated that he would be shown to be the promised cornerstone or capstone in the end. Hmm. So you see, even in quoting this stone, the cornerstone from 118, there's a dig in here for the Pharisees and the religious leaders. The dig is, you guys have already made up your mind. You've already tested me. You've already rejected me as counterfeit. And now here's what happens when you reject the cornerstone. That's what he's going to talk about. You get it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, question seven, which we're going to get to, we're going to answer that question specifically. How could they miss this? How could they not see? Right? So that's question seven. So can I hold you for a second? Good. We'll get there. All right, so um, number four, how does this analogy of the rejected stone that became the cornerstone complement the point of this parable? Right? Why did Jesus pull the cornerstone into this vineyard thing? Right? Because don't you see, it's all about rejecting. See, this whole thing, this discussion in, in chapter 12 at the beginning here, it's all about the, the rejecting of the Son of Man rejecting the Messiah. That's what it's all about. The vineyard, they rejected the prophets, they rejected the son, and they were cast out of the vineyard. The stone, they've rejected, they've tested Jesus, you know, and they found him to be counterfeit, not real, not genuine, not worthy, and they've rejected him. See, this whole thing is about rejection, isn't it? So Jesus is getting right to the heart of the matter. We're not talking doctrine anymore. We're not talking and disagreeing about finer points of theology. We're talking about the heart of the matter. And what matters? What in the end is going to save someone? Excuse me. What in the end is going to allow someone to remain in the vineyard or exclude them from life in the vineyard? What is it? What we believe about baptism? What we believe about real presence versus transubstantiation? Right? What we believe, you know, what is it that matters in the end? Whether you receive, believe in Jesus Christ, or you reject him. That's it. So he is right now. These are the last days he has with them. This is his last chance to teach them. And now he's finally at the point where he's saying, listen, you've heard all my teachings. 
you've seen all my miracles, right? You, you've, you've, uh, it, it's time now where you have to decide. It's time now where you either have to receive me and the grace and forgiveness I have for you or reject me. And just so you know, <laughs> there's consequences. This is where he's at. Make sense, y'all? So this analogy with the cornerstone is perfect for the analogy the, the, of the vineyard. All right, then, uh, you know, Luke, who also tells the story of the parable of the tenants, he adds something that Jesus said here that, that Mark didn't include. I printed it for you from verse 18. I printed in your question number five. Luke said that Jesus said, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But he on whom it falls will be crushed. So Luke goes uh, even another step further, talking about the, the cornerstone's purpose and the consequences for rejecting it. So what does that mean? Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. Think about that, right? He's talking about those who are rejecting him, those who are rejecting the cornerstone. And if you crash up against Jesus, if you crash up against his teachings, if you crash up against what he has done for you, and instead of letting him save you, try and save yourself, instead of following the way to God that he's laid out, you try and follow your own religion, your own path. If you crash up against that stone, what's going to break? You or the stone? Do you see? So he says, right, whoever falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Read between the lines. The stone isn't going to be damaged. The stone isn't going to break into pieces. The stone's not going to fall apart because <laughs> the stone is truth. The stone is God. So you, anytime you, you're against God, you lose. God doesn't lose. So whoever falls in that stone will be broken to pieces. But then next, he on whom it falls will be crushed. What does that mean? Right? He who it falls on will be crushed. I think Jesus is saying then that if you continue to reject, the day is coming when the righteous judge, the cornerstone, will judge you as guilty. The cornerstone, Jesus, the judge, will fall upon you and you will be crushed for all eternity. Not just broken to pieces, right? Broken to pieces means that you're, you know, there's still a chance you could be put back together. Here, when judgment day comes, when the cornerstone falls on you, you will be crushed. Do you see what he's saying to them? He's not mincing words anymore, is he? In other words, somebody that rejects but doesn't totally reject is allowed to go back. Basically, it's sin against the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't know what you mean by reject but not totally reject. Well, I mean, you either reject or you don't. Yeah, so I'm talking, there's like a time thing for me. The first half, the one who falls on it will, will be broken into pieces. There's still time for you to return, to come back. But once judgment day comes, once the righteous judge, once the cornerstone falls, right, then you're crushed and there's no coming back again. That's just my take on it. I, that's why I make sense of it, you know. Um, and then I'm thinking, it's just, I think the point in this then, Jesus makes it so clear, doesn't he? That he is the ultimate either or. Jesus is the ultimate either or. There's no middle ground here. You know, there, there's no other way. He is the great either or. Either you believe in him and are saved or you reject him and you are crushed. There's no middle ground. 
You know, he's the ultimate either or. It still works that way. Matthew 25, when Jesus gets really clear about what happens in the end times, and he separates all of humanity for Judgment Day, how many groups does he put them into? Are there like Lutherans, Catholics, Episcopals, Mormons, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, Atheists, Agnostics, uh, Lions fans, Bears fans, Vikings fans? You know, how many groups are there? There's two, sheep and goats. Believers and unbelievers, those who have received the inheritance that's been prepared for them since the beginning of time, and those who have rejected it. That's it. Just two. Just two. So, you know, he is the great either or. He has been and he always will be the great either or. Thoughts, questions? Is this making sense, y'all? All right, six. Did the parable in its application have the effect Jesus desired? <laughs> what do you think? Well, it depends what the effect was, right? What, right? Um, if Jesus' effect, if, if his hoped, hoped purpose of telling the parable was so that they would turn and stop rejecting and believe, well, that didn't work, did it? If his purpose was to actually lay out the truth so that it would be clear for all to see, then that worked in it. Yeah, then it worked. Right? So what is it that he desired? I think his desire was that they would all be good tenants. And that was his hope. That they would all be good tenants. That they would tend the vineyard. They would be truthful to the word of God. That they would cultivate it and fertilize it and prune it so that it would bear beautiful fruit to God's glory. That was his purpose. That's his hope. However, it says later on that they looked for a way to arrest him. Isn't it ironic that in the end, after telling the parable about those who wanted to kill the, the one the landowner sent and they were cast out, in the end, what did they decide to do? Kill the one that they had sent, and therefore they would be cast out. So that leads me to question number seven. Hello, why could you not see this? Why is it that they couldn't see the clear teaching? Why is it they couldn't see who Jesus was and what he came to do? Why is it? Why is it instead of taking Jesus' warnings to heart, they became hard-hearted instead? Right? Isn't that exactly what happened? What Jesus wanted them is to take his warnings and his teachings to heart that it would change them. Instead, it made their hearts harder, actually. Hard-hearted. So what, what was the reason? What does it all come down to in the end? Okay, fulfillment of the Scripture. What's the point of the Scripture? You're right. What's the whole point of the Bible? It's one word that starts with a J. Jesus, right? right? It's the whole point. The whole point all comes down in the end. They rejected the Messiah that Jesus came to be because he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. Right? That's the point. That's the reason. They didn't want a Messiah who would suffer. They didn't want a Messiah who would call them to love their enemies. They wanted a Messiah who would come to stop their suffering and destroy their enemies. <laughs> right? So they, when Jesus starts talking about suffering and serving and loving and dying and taking up a cross and following me, they all said, no, that's not what I want. That's not what we want. And so they hardened their heart against this message. They would not listen to what he had to say. They ignored the consequences because they liked their way better than God's way. Right? Now, before you go, how could you be so dumb? Just think about how many times you have done the same thing. God, I know this is the way you would rather have me go, but I don't want to go that way. This way is going to cost me something. This way is going to embarrass me. This way is going to mean that I could lose something that I don't want to lose. So, you know, I've got a better way, God, and it's called my way. 
So let's do my way, God. That's the way we're going to go. And what, what just happened to your heart? It just calcified. You just hardened your heart, didn't you? This is human nature. Adam and Eve is where this started. Right? <laughs> what was really the sin of Adam and Eve? They wanted to do their way, not God's way. It was eye disease. And it's still the same for us today. The warning that Jesus gives here to the religious leaders is the same warning he gives to us. Don't harden your heart to the word of God and the will of God in your life. But did I see a hand? All right, so she said, they believe the Old Testament, but they didn't make the connection. I agree, but I would, I would add something to that. They believe the parts of the Old Testament they wanted to believe, but they left out a whole bunch of other things that they didn't want to believe. Everything about a suffering Messiah, about a servant Messiah, it's all in the Old Testament. It's all there. But see, that's not the part that they wanted to see. So they just looked at the parts they did want to see. Another great warning for us, that we don't just see the, word, the parts of the Word of God that we like and then ignore the parts that are difficult or challenging. Do you know what I'm saying? That's still a great warning for us. So yeah, but see, they only saw the parts that they wanted to see. Maybe I told you the story about um, my first church in Kansas um, was marrying a couple. The man was a member of our church and the woman was Jewish. And so she said, I'm marrying this guy. I should find out what it means to be a Christian. Can we meet? I'm going, thank you, God. <laughs> right? So she showed up and uh, we just, uh, all I decided, I just prayed about it. And, and I just felt God saying, don't even open the New Testament. Just open her Bible, the Old Testament, and show all the beautiful prophecies of Jesus giving his life to forgive our sins. We read some of that stuff, and she said, I've never heard this before. It was her own Bible. They just didn't look at those parts. They're still not seeing those parts of the Old Testament that talk about who Jesus was and what he did. You know? So again, great warning. I know I can be blind to the things I don't want to see in the Word. Okay, I, she did. So it buried her and baptized her on the same day. One of the coolest things I've, in my ministry that's ever happened. March. Yes, when David was king. Whenever they talked about the good old days, they were talking about David. Remember that when the place flowed with milk and honey, that was David. Good news is the son of David's coming again. Click. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Sure do. Sure do. They say be careful when you point. Because all these other fingers are pointing right back at you. Isn't that the way it goes, right? All right. So is this, you know, uh, are you seeing the beauty of the word of God? It, it Jesus is connecting with the folks who are right there looking at him. And he's also connecting to you and me today too, isn't he? Challenging us as well. So that brings us to this last aid. How may we apply this parable to us today? Right? This parable is not just about Jewish leaders, is it? The tenants of those days. Who's the vineyard today? Is it still the nation of Israel? Yes, but who is the nation of Israel? It's all of us. We're the vineyard today. Right? And, and what's our purpose? To produce beautiful fruit that gives God all the glory, honor, and praise. Who are the tenants? These are our spiritual leaders of the day, today. You know, the tenants, the, there's, we're still called to faithfully teach the word, to faithfully stand on the cornerstone and not reject, right? That, that's still uh, important. And, and what is it that the, what's the fruit that we're to produce? Today, what's the fruit that we're asked to produce in this vineyard? Fruits of faith. For sure, the fruits of faith, you know, and to tell the good news so everyone will know who Jesus really is and what he's done for them now and all eternity.
All right, thoughts? Great analogy Jesus used there, isn't it? He's the cornerstone. Love it. Anyone else, a thought or a question? All right, awesome. Have a great rest of the day, you uh, vineyard of God. Produce beautiful fruit, okay? See you later.